Hello and welcome to IPO Stories, a podcast that explores the tracks to IPOs for companies and their stakeholders. Through interviews with professionals who have led companies to public markets, we will learn about what it takes to IPO a business, the do's and the don'ts before, during, and after the listing process. I'm Gauthier. I'm Pear, co-founders of Amundsen Investment Management, a Europe-based equity manager. In this episode, we will talk with Jesper Trolle, the CEO of Exclusive Networks, a global distributor of cybersecurity solutions. Jesper joined Exclusive in September 2020 and successfully led the company to its IPO on Euronext Paris one year later. Jesper and Gauthier will discuss the process leading from being a private equity-owned company to becoming a public one, the benefits of being listed, and the changes it entails for the management and employees. Before we start, we would like to remind our listeners that our discussion is not an investment recommendation and that Amundsen Investment Management and the participants on this podcast may have holdings in the companies being discussed. Jesper, thank you very much for joining us today. Very happy to have you here. You are the CEO of Exclusive Network, the company IPO'd in September 21, close to 18 months ago, at a valuation of 1.8 billion euros. At the time, it was a 20% free float, so... um, the company raised some money and your uh, pre-IPO investors also sold a bit of um, shares. Very happy to have you here. Maybe we should start, Jesper, by um, introducing yourself and telling us a bit more about Exodent Network. That would be great. Sure. Thank you, Gauthier, and appreciate you uh, having me on your show today. As you say, my name is Jesper Trolle. I'm, uh, I'm 50 years old, married. I have two children, two teenage, a girl and a boy, 17 and 15 years old. I'm born and raised in Denmark by uh, a Swedish mother and a Danish father. So I guess I, I'm almost as Nordic as you can be. I've spent about 30 years in the technology ecosystem. Half of my career, I've been working internationally in Germany, in France, and in the US. And through those jobs, I've overseen most part of the world. If we look at Exclusive, just to maybe present a little bit to your listeners uh, who we are and what we do, Exclusive Networks was founded in 2003 by a French man called Olivier Bretmeier. It was based on a business idea of helping cybersecurity startups to grow and scale their operations internationally. If you fast forward from that time till today, so 20 years, this year is a milestone for us because we are turning 20 years old. Today, we are a global company. We operate with offices across 46 countries around the world. We are selling into 170 countries around the world, and we employ more than 2,500 employees. And last year, we were guiding for gross sales in the magnitude of 4 to 2 billion euros. This growth has come through strong exposure into the underlying cybersecurity market by having deep, meaningful relationships with some of the world's leading cybersecurity companies but also coupled with a strong focus on what we call value-generating M&A. We've done more than 19 acquisitions over the last 10 years, and so that's a big part of uh, of our strategy as well. I like to say we are sitting at the intersection of, of really two ecosystems. On one hand, we are aggregating the solution and services from the most leading cybersecurity vendors in the world. We call this the supply side of the ecosystem. And then on the other side, we have the broadest and most specialized routes to market, which consists of more than 25,000 partners around the world, through which we are aggregating demand coming from more than 150,000 end customers. These are companies of all sizes, public, private companies, public sector, private sector, etc. 
we sit in the middle of this, which is called a two-tier value chain, and we act as a service provider with a broad range of service offerings. Some of those are more traditional procurement services, financing, logistics, to more advanced services such as demand creation, solution design, level one, level two support, technical enablement, and also more and more global deployment projects where we are assisting companies around the world to implement their cybersecurity infrastructure. So that's a little bit about uh, exclusive and about myself. Okay, thank you very much. Can we um, maybe start with the um, IP rational? What were the motivations initially of the listing back in September 21? Yeah, sure. So we had a couple of objectives with the IPO. I would say, first off, this is a company that had gone through sort of meaningfully larger and larger LBOs. And so one of the first rationales with the IPO was to delever the company to increase our strategic optionality. I would say at the time, we didn't necessarily know that. But in hindsight, uh, with the current environment we're finding ourselves in, in terms of interest rates, uh, this was actually a, a pretty good aim at the time. Secondly, we wanted to become more known as a company and for the value we are generating and creating within the cybersecurity market. We've always been quite well known within our own sort of small market that we serve. But outside, had very few stakeholders and very few people who actually know what we are doing and the value we are creating. After the IPO, we obviously uh, have been able to participate in uh, tech capital markets events. We've done more and more increasingly number of interviews with leading media outlets like Reuters, Bloomberg, Sky News, BFM Enforce. And now we're also on your show. And, uh, you know, I like to say if we hadn't gone through this, I think uh, we would not have been as interesting a company to talk to. Thirdly, we also wanted to uh, create a liquid instrument that we could use uh, for things like M&A. As I mentioned before in the introduction, m and is, uh, is a big part of the, it's not our strategy, but it's a big part of the way we implement the strategy. And so having a now a liquid instrument, which is a stock that we can use in M&A, but also that we can use to attract and retain talent is, uh, is critical, particularly at the time we are in where uh, there is scarcity of talent. And particularly within cybersecurity, there is real scarcity of talent with more than three and a half million open roles across the world. So these were sort of the three objectives. So deleverage, creating a liquid instrument, and then also, uh, frankly, branch out into a larger part of the market and reach more stakeholders to understand what Exclusive is doing. And so yourself, you joined the company not long before the IPO. And actually, we discussed about that. You've actually been hired on Zoom right in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. At the time, you knew or the, your mandate was to list the company. And then knowing, again, that you didn't have previous experience, direct experience in terms of listing a company, right? Yeah, so it's true. I was uh, hired uh, as, a, as another COVID employee, right, during uh, you know, Zoom and, and Teams and what have you. When I joined the company or when I was interviewing the company, uh, the IPO was not a decision or decided. You know, I always knew that, of course, when you are owned by a private equity sponsor, you know, I like to say if they own you more than seven years, something's wrong. So at a point in time, they want to exit. Of course, there are multiple opportunities for an exit. It doesn't need to be an IPO, but obviously this could be one of the routes. I didn't join for that because, again, it was not something that was decided or was sort of a, a goalpost in the future. But I knew that it could be one of the events. You didn't feel that not having this um, previous public experience would have been basically uh, you know, hard on you to actually bring the company to the public market, right? You feel that you were equipped enough to list the company despite um, you know, your previous IPO experience. 
I don't know if you ever can feel you are equipped enough. The reality is that I left a big job in my old company and I joined a company that was in a way smaller, but, you know, at a different position as the CEO. And for me, that was part of the attraction, right? Yes, I haven't done a, an IPO before. I think, you know, most CEOs have actually not tried it. And so for me, I decided to learn as much as I could from it. I didn't pretend to know it all. Of course, I was still actually also fairly new in the business. So I had to sort of manage that as well. But yeah, I decided to surround ourselves with the right people and advisors and, uh, and learn from it and do the best we could. We also have a private equity sponsor that has done a couple of IPOs with some of their portfolio companies. So that helps as well to provide a bit of, uh, of guidance and, and support. So I feel fortunate that I've been given the opportunity to do it. And I learned a lot from it, quite frankly. And touching upon what has to be done to get the company ready for listing, when you came at Exclusive Network and that it became clear that the IPO would be a likely option for your shareholders, what were the biggest, not challenges, but I would say work streams or changes to implement at the company level to get to this point of being ready to be public? Good question. So I would say a couple of things. You know, first, just for me, as I just alluded to, and for a couple of other of the senior leadership team that was new, was just getting up to speed on on the process and on the business, et cetera, was critical, right? If you don't really understand well what the company is doing, it's difficult to explain it to other people. So that was sort of one piece. I think the biggest and most daunting task was to prepare the financials to be ready for an IPO. There are a lot of work streams in an IPO, but the financial one where as a private company, you know, you take longer to close your books, you take longer to get audited, you have management accounts. You know, we didn't necessarily have IFRS and the way we looked at our numbers. And to be able to be IPO ready, so to speak, you need all of that, but you need it for past history as well to be able to see trends and directions and Having gone through many, many LBOs, the company didn't necessarily has its accounts ready to do that. So there were a lot of work being done to close to half years, getting the financials audited and also uh, converting uh, from FriendsCap into IFRS. And that took a lot of time, a lot of work. You, know, you need to make sure with, in this case, the AMF that, you know, your numbers and the structures are in line with what they uh, require in terms of quality. And so... There's a lot of work and redo and more work. And, and that was quite stressful, quite frankly, for the company. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, you know, I don't know if it's you actually, but I heard one CEO telling me that a successful IPO is actually when you don't lose any employees on the way because obviously it takes a lot of time and resources, right, on the teams. It's true, it takes a lot, but it's also a rallying project in a way, right? It's something that's easy to gather people around. Yes, it's a lot of hard work for sure. But you can actually rally people behind that. And in most cases, and also in our case, we had to bring in a lot more people to, uh, to be able to sustain the workload. If you reflect a bit on that period ahead of the IPO of preparation, any steps, any items, work stream you would have done differently or, or maybe would have passed on or do in a different way? I don't know if I would have done anything differently. I mean, I would have loved to have more time, but that's not necessarily always the cards you've been dealt uh, because obviously the market is also an important aspect when you think about the timing of an IPO, right? But I would say the longer you have to prepare an IPO, I mean, I'm meeting companies now that are planning to do an IPO in two, three years, and I'm, I'm thinking, wow, how lucky they are for that. I mean, we took six months. But on the other hand, we were actually fortunate because a lot of this work still happened in uh, COVID period. 
And so in hindsight, I mean, we didn't really think about it at the time, but in hindsight, it made the process a lot more efficient because you don't need to move around to the same extent, uh, particularly at the end of the IPO to go, you know, roadshows and investors, analyst meetings, et cetera. So from that perspective, I think we were, we were actually fortunate. Knowing what I know now, the two things that I think are important is, um, first, it is to surround yourself with people who have done the process before and that have the experience with the public markets. And then secondly, and sometimes you're not that fortunate, by the way. I mean, at the time, I felt like we had a good team. They were very dynamic. They worked hard. They you know, had their hearts and minds in the right place. But I had to admit that I realized that at some point that not all of them would get us to where we needed to be. So I had to make the necessary changes on that. The second point I would say is there are a lot of work streams in an IPO process, but actually when you start thinking about it and you break it down, there are a lot of interdependencies between the work streams and some are dependent on others and and some are not. And so having people around you that can help you to see the bigger picture in a way and not just, hey, today you need to work on the equity story. Tomorrow you need to work on, you know, the IFRS translation. On Thursday you need to work on the board build or whatever it might be. Having someone who can help you to sort of step back and look at the process as one rather than 50 different sub-processes is very useful because I think you can run a risk of jumping on things that are urgent but not important and therefore you don't get it done in time and, and then you go off track on some of the other uh, work streams that maybe are a little bit further out. So um, I think we're going to talk about advisors, but this is definitely um, you know something I would recommend. Yeah, we will get back obviously to the role and the selection of advisors, which you know I agree and we heard the same. It's very important to get the right team around you. Before moving to this question, just keen to get as well a bit your views on the choice of a listing location, because obviously you, you know, as a cybersecurity company, a lot of you, um, you know, clients and vendors are actually U.S. Right? Your clients will be globally in Europe, but a lot of the vendors will be very um, big U.S. Being a tech company, was the U.S. an option for you in terms of IPO location? Was it a debate with you um, shareholders before the IPO, and what were you thinking around that? For sure, the U.S., I mean, any location was an option, but it was never really a debate on whether we should list. You're right that a lot of tech companies are listed in the U.S. If you look at the flip side of that, you could argue there is scarcity of tech companies listed in Europe. Secondly, as a company, we have always consolidated everything in euros. And if we were to list in the U.S., we would. You know, the U.S. is a fairly small business in the grand scheme of things, even though it's growing well. but for us to list in the U.S., we would have to sort of redo a lot of our things to now suddenly consolidate our currencies back into into U.S. dollars. And so it was never really a big debate on whether it should be euro versus U.S. When it comes to Europe, it's all euro next today, I guess, more or less, but uh, on Nasdaq and a few in the Nordics at least. But um, there was not a lot of debate either. We looked a bit at France or Paris, we looked at Amsterdam, Brussels, but actually, if you think about it, with uh, once we have decided on Europe, you know, given the French roots of exclusive networks, French founder, first country of operation, location of the headquarter, for us, it was quite natural to frankly list in Paris at Euronext. And there were not a lot of differences whether we were to list in another Euronext location in terms of what we had to comply with. So it's not like it would have been easier to do it in another market versus uh, Paris. And so for us, um, 
you know, we decided to go with uh, Paris and we're, we're happy with that choice. Some technical arguments put forward for US listing will be, you know, better liquidity. Another one will be, especially within the broad tech universe, the better certification of US investors when it comes to tech and maybe especially cybersecurity. Now you've been roadshowing for around two years before the IPO and after the IPO. You've met a lot of those global investors, US, European. Do you actually see a difference in sophistication or how a European versus a US investor will look at your company, your market, and the opportunity set? I don't know if I see different sophistication. I think, you know, US investors tend to be very well grounded in the US. Now, as you can imagine, most of the people we meet from US investors are the people that are designated to invest outside of the US. With a global mandate, right? With a global mandate, exactly. But of course, you have some massive names in the US when it comes to investment, right? And and they have uh, an army of troops that they can bring in to analyze your company and your fundamentals, etc. So you could say maybe there is a higher degree of uh, of knowledge and skill sets there, but in general, I don't feel a significant difference. Actually, I would love to have more U.S. investors. By the way, we have a good number, but we're still sort of skewed more towards uh, European investors right now. Yeah, and the change obviously in the U.S. is to be visible. There's so many tech companies you're, you're going to compete against, right, to attract capital. But that's my point on scarcity, right? I mean, yes, it's a more maybe advanced scene. There are better understanding, etc. But at the same time, there is a lot to choose from. And you're right that in our case, a lot of our vendors or our upstream ecosystem of supply and solutions is uh, are to a large part listed in the U.S. And downstream on our partners, uh, we have several that are listed in Europe. We also have a couple that are listed in the U.S., but majority are listed in Europe. You know, we're in between the two if you want. And yeah, it's been working well so far. Moving on to um, the role of advisors, you touch upon that. Uh, very important to um, to hire the right people and people with experience uh, of those IPOs. Right. Can you tell us, not necessarily which advisors actually, but what type of advisors you hired and you know what were the functions they played and the most important critical one that you valued during the IPO process? You know, first off, I would say that uh, one of the first things you learn when you embark on an IPO project is that uh, the world is full of advisors. You know, I think uh, there is almost an advisor for every possible question that you could face during, uh, during the IPO process. In our case, of course, the first starting point with advisors is really to choose your global coordinators and your book runners. So, you know, you bring in a lot of bankers to sort of pitch you your company and the opportunity. And here we put emphasis on choosing the companies that we felt uh, we would work the best with, where we had some chemistry with the individuals. We put a lot of emphasis on the fact that the people that were pitching us were also the people we were going to work with. And so sort of chemistry between individuals. And then also an overall understanding of exclusive networks, our positioning, our business, and the potential for the future. We did not put a lot of emphasis uh, out of the gate on valuations, because as we all know, there are a lot of factors influencing the final valuation of an IPO. And so, of course, you can imagine that there were huge spread, but actually whether you were at the top or the bottom or in the middle didn't really pay a lot of attention to when we, when we went to decide on who to work with. Outside of the, the bankers and in terms of other advisors, we had advisors around project management. So we had some who was, uh, it's no secret, Lassar, who was working with us on, on doing the overarching project management, I would say, of the entire project and its stakeholders. 
Then we had uh, quite a few financial advisors that we brought in to help us on some of the financial work stream in particular, as we discussed before, around IFRS conversion, etc. We had presentation coaches for the leadership team to learn how to present the company and be more natural doing that. I mean, I spend my life in sale and marketing, so I can talk about anything, but it's not always for all people something that's supernatural. And so having someone in who can guide you a bit on the do's and don'ts and maybe think about saying it like this versus another way is uh, is actually important when you sit in front of an investor that has maybe in the matter of an hour to decide whether they want to invest or not. We also had advisors around communication. So we worked with, uh, with a couple of advisors around communication, making sure that we increased our reach and that we were sort of gearing up for the IPO in the right media outlets, whether that was written communication or whether that was, uh, you know, more interview style. Then we had legal advisors, as you would imagine, to ensure that we comply with all of the different legalities of an IPO, making sure that we satisfy the right disclosures, etc. And then finally, we had, you know, recruitment companies we were working with as part of the board bill and these types of areas. So I'm sure, by the way, there are probably 10 other advisors I've forgotten about. But I would say in the grand scheme of things, these were a big group of advisors. And for this latter group, in terms of choosing them, you know, obviously some were recommended by, by the bankers or by our private equity or some we knew from the past in some shape or form. But what I put a lot of emphasis on were, did they come with prior experience and work with other companies that's been in a similar situation as where exclusive were? Because we were frankly seeking that experience to help us anticipate looking a bit around the corners to see what's coming, what do we need to be aware of, and try and position ourselves to be the best prepared for the things to come. And then finally, we had, obviously, as I said, we had some pre-existing relationships, which also were part of our decision tree. So, you know, you, you said it, you have as many advisors as you, you have questions and, and topics, right? But is there anything where maybe you would have liked to receive a different piece of advice or better piece of advice, looking again back to the IPO process, anything you would have liked to know at the time? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the reality is when you go into something like this, and as we said in the, in the beginning, most CEOs have never tried it before. And so you go into something like this and you don't know what to expect, right? So... What I would like to know at the time is that when you bring in an advisor on a topic, that's what they care about. And they don't necessarily care about the other topics that are related to their work stream. And so advisors that can step back and give a little bit more of this 360 view, you know, that you are not just into help on preparing the presentation or the communication, you know, you also you understand some of the other work streams because you've done it before and you see the interdependencies is critical. So I think, you know, if there ever were some an ask of these advisors, it would be not only advising on their own particular field, but also at the same time try to make you understand how these things actually are dependent. One of the things we did, which actually was a recommendation from our private equity sponsor, was to bring in a quite small company but as an advisor to the management team, on, sort of on project management. So not like a Lazar that has all of the external engagement with all of the different constituents in an IPO project, but a small company that worked alongside the management team. We had twice a week updates on here's the overall timeline. Here are the key points. This one moved two days. It means this one down here is going to move another two days. So we need to catch up on this one because then we can get back and still sort of go at the listing time, which we were all shooting for. 
And in hindsight, I would say that investment, which was not compared to a lot of other advisors, you know, was not necessarily very significant, has paid big dividends because for me particularly and for the leadership team, it was a way for me to make sure that someone who understands this world, who understands the interdynamics, every morning wakes up and check that everything is kind of at the same place and, and that we haven't fallen off for too much of the, of the overall timeline. And that's very good to hear, actually, because that's always you know something we think about as well when we meet companies in an IPO process. We always feel the management is obviously under pressure. They have a lot of different fronts uh, where they have to engage. Obviously, they have to keep the business going, right? Talking to customers, but now talking to investors, advisors, and, and we feel sometimes that they obviously, given they lack the experience by definition of listing a business, that they're you know at risk of being put in a corner here and all on their shoulders and really feel that having you know, a specific team of advisors working with them through the process is probably the right thing to do. And it's good to hear that actually you practically sponsors put forward that idea because back to your comment that every advisor might think about their own little perimeter. The reality is some of those private equity owners have the experience of IPOs because they've done a few of them with their portfolio companies. And, and I believe they're in the right position to actually give the best advice to the managements going through an IPO process about how to execute that IPO process at best, right? So you sponsors played a key role here? Yeah, they did. Indirectly, they, I mean, of course, they, they have their own interests, right? But indirectly, they played a key role by suggesting that. And then obviously for us, uh, you know, tapping into that experience that they've had from other quite successful listings is, is a big help to a leadership team that's trying to, to IPO a company. There's no doubt about it. Is the relationship before and after the IPO changing with your sponsors? And, and to what extent if that happens? Or the relationship is the same? Not really. I mean, the relationship is the same. I mean, I have to say that, you know, I didn't say that in the introduction, but part of the reason for me joining was to get closer to this world of private equity. And I didn't necessarily know the company that was the sponsor before, but we engage quite a lot with them and we have a very open, a very transparent relationship. They're obviously in our board and we keep having a very strong relationship. They have a big tech focus, which is very helpful for me when we think about the value we can deliver and where we should be going. And so we are fortunate that we have a great relationship with them. And also, as I said before, that due to their successful past history with IPOs, they uh, could give us great inputs and guidance on certain topics. And as a CEO, when you talk to public investors, do you feel that the different appreciation in terms of, I mean, the fact that you're not founder-led anymore, you're not necessarily management-led in terms of ownership, but you're more private equity-led, do you think that that creates a different perception of your company equity story vis-a-vis the public investors who might have a preference for non-private equity assets or, or that's not at all the case? I don't, uh, so far, I would, I mean, it's still early on, right? I mean, we're only a year and a half in from the listing. So we've been very open since day one, basically, that, you know, who were the selling shareholders? What would be the, their position after the IPO? And so I think what the market, and you, that's your material, you know this better than anyone, I guess. What the market don't like is surprises. And so when you are open on something and you say, this is how it is, and it is like that, then, I think the market reacts or investors react differently than when you maybe don't say it and then suddenly it comes out or you say something and the world shows up. So we've been very open on the fact that we floated 20% of the company. It would come from a mix of the private equity sponsor, the former founder or the founder and the former CEO and, and a little bit from the, uh, from the selling uh, employees. That's how it went down and hasn't been a surprise. 
now it's changing a little bit, right? Now you can imagine some investors are asking, uh, when will they sell again? But as I always like to say, uh, frankly, it's not my decision. I'm not the shareholder here. I, I'm my own shareholder and I'm not going to sell, but I can uh, talk for them and it's up to their decision on when and at which price they want to do it. And I don't really want to be in that discussion, to be honest. Yeah, makes sense. I'd like to move on to the topic of life as a public company after the IPO is done. Great success. Now you have a share price, which trades up and down every day. I try to remember, but obviously I think already in 21, uh, you raised, no, you didn't raise, but you did beat your IPO guidance for the full year 21. Then last year, you actually raised through the year your 22 gross guidance. So you've done really well. Thank you. And uh, none of the less shares have been volatile. They're still a bit below the IPO price, but so do the market. And actually you, you did relatively well compared to all IPOs last year, really well. But how did you live with this volatility? Uh, you serve as a management, but also touching upon the employees. How are they perceiving this volatility? And is it really difficult and challenging to manage now you're public? And every day you can look at your share price. You know, I have a saying, uh, which I like to use internally, which is we should focus in brackets what we, uh, what we control as a company. And that's how we execute the implementation of the strategy. If we do this well, and we have a bit of luck, as they say in golf, the more you train, the more luck you get then I believe the stock market will take notice and frankly, the price and everything will take care of itself. What you also know is, and, and this is what I'm trying to sort of educate our people internally is, you're never alone, right? You are in a market where you're just one of the companies out there in a, in a stock market. What I mean with you're not alone is, you know, we are in a situation where, let's say from post-COVID till today, the valuations, multiples of tech companies in particular have sort of slid quite substantially. And that goes with all tech companies, us included, by the way. So that's an impact. And so when I say we are never alone, it's not like the valuation of exclusive has gone completely down. It's the sector as a whole. So that's one example of never being alone. If the whole market is down because of I mean, these days it's so volatile, right? Whether there is good or bad news coming out of the ECB or the Fed or Davos or whatever it might be, the whole market is moving. It's very rare that, you know, one stock moves in a sector. I mean, sometimes it happens, but in general, I would say it's kind of more sector specific than company specific, unless there is something really going on with that, with an individual company, good or bad. And so I like this idea to illustrate, you know, that you are never alone because Actually, it's not necessarily because, you know, we are doing a bad job that the price is down or it's not because necessarily we are doing a great job that the price is up. It's really market dependent. And so I think one of the things that's really changing, and to be honest with you, this was an area I did not have a lot of expertise with because I came from a public traded company, not as a CEO, but still a public traded, was that you have a lot of employees that you know, at the time had some shares from management packages that in a way were a non-liquid asset, right? Every time there is an event, you can maybe sell a little bit, but mostly you roll it into something else. And so the IPO created a liquidity event for them where now they could start to think about potentially selling a little bit of their holdings or all if they wanted, by the way, and maybe um, defer their investments into other areas to drive a little bit of a mixed portfolio rather than having everything tied up and exclusive. And of course, when you're private, you can talk about the value of the company in a whole other way versus being public where, to your point, every day, you know, you can see 
what is today the value of the company according to investors who either want to buy and sell. And that's something you've got to manage. And the way we are trying to get around it is, you know, I like to think about stakeholders and different stakeholders. And I try and treat the internal employees as a, as a different group of stakeholders. Of course, I can't disclose information to them that I don't disclose to the market. But as I've just done now, I can give them a bit of perspective of actually we are doing well. And it's not because we are not doing well that the company right now is trading below its IPO price. There are some other dynamics that are more market driven, that are more sector driven. And then there are some dynamics in our case that are company driven, which is there's never a meeting without talking about lack of liquidity. So let's just get it out there. You know, we have a lack of liquidity. It's getting better and it, it sort of moved quite a bit after the expiry of the, of the lockup of the former employee shareholders or the employee shareholders. But considering the market cap of the company, considering the size, we should have more liquidity. And so uh, that is definitely having an impact on the price. It has nothing to do with the value of the company in a way and what we do and the value we generate, but it has an impact on the price. Do you feel public investors are quite impatient and a bit too short-term and put pressure on you as a management to um, you know, communicate more than what you want or push you on saying things you don't want or that? not at all, actually? Well, so far, we, you know, frankly, we've been fortunate, right? We've been doing what we said we would do and we've done it a little bit better. And so in general, most investors are quite happy and we can see that there is more and more appetite. I don't feel a lot of push. Of course, investors want to ideally uh, try and find something that no one else has seen and so they can make a good return on a potential investment. It's a tough job, right? I mean, they're trying to, they sit in front of me, my CFO, or maybe a couple of other people, and they're trying to basically learn a company very quickly. And in my case, learn a company with a management and a CEO that is new to the company as well. And so, no, I don't feel pressure. Of course, they would like to know. They would always like to know more. And they're trying. But of course, uh, investors are a group of stakeholders and a lot of them think the same way. And so they ask the same questions. Sometimes, and this is a bit of an anecdote for yourself, sometimes you have investors that ask different questions that no one else has asked before. And I give you an example because you and I had a meeting a long time ago before the early look, and you actually raised a question which no one else had raised at the time, which was, how do I think the culture of exclusives is going to change when we go from a private to a public company? And I thought that was quite interesting because, because it has changed a bit. It has attracted different kind of people and some people have left because they don't like the stress, the focus, some of the tension, because there is more tension, right? Because you say, I'm going to do X and you need to ideally deliver on that and otherwise be able to explain why. And so there is, there is some tension. But it attracts other people who like to come in and be part of a public company and can see some opportunities to maybe, you know, make uh, some money. But, but in general, investors ask a lot of the same questions. But sometimes, like in your case, you get questions that actually no one else is really asking. Okay, that's good to hear. Yes, but I think I had just two final questions for you. To close the episode, just trying to get some fun facts from the IPO Roadshow. If there's anything you can share during that process, which you know uh, our listeners could be uh, keen to listen to. Well, I have a few, but I don't know if it's a fun fact or if it's a scary fact. I'll let you uh, decide. I had my assistant tally up uh, the number of meetings and hours we spend on the, uh, or I spend on the IPO, so not for my team. And so I've done uh, 185 meetings with bankers and advisors, which is a total of uh, 202 hours. 
46 uh, early look presentations, 21 company uh, analyst deep dives, 40 roadshow meetings. And so you think about all of this and you think about this is then at the same time where uh, we had to manage the day-to-day uh, business and seeing customers, uh, vendors, uh, taking care of employees, uh, et cetera. So uh, I think, you know, it's numbers for someone like me who have a pretty full calendar every day. You know, it kind of puts these numbers in perspective. So I think I would say uh, it's a project that um, requires a lot of resource. Quite frankly, a lot of luck as well, and a lot of hard work, and a company needs to be uh, needs to be ready for that, because otherwise, I think um, it can go wrong. Those are impressive numbers, actually. Uh, if you add that up, how many investors eventually participate in the IPO, the institutional book, if you remember? I, I don't have the number. I think we are close to a hundred, actually. I mean, I, I only really see the bigger tickets, right? But it's not bad, actually. It's not bad. One of the things I learned, which was super frustrating to me, is that, and I never really realized this, that except for bigger sort of chunks of ownership, you don't really know who owns your stock. It's very strange in a way. I mean, you can ask, so now I ask when I meet investors, but you don't really know who owns your stock outside of the big, uh, you know, I, I, cannot, I think the threshold we put is 1% or 2%, but it's very strange. Uh, we have the same questions as well with we, we shareholders and sometimes management is surprised we actually shareholders that don't necessarily see us, but that's the nature of the public markets. Another just last question, how many times per day are you looking at your share price? Now with the new uh, with the new iOS, you can put it on your home screen so I can look at it every day. But, you know, I, I check it uh, when the market opens. I check it when the market closes. I, you know, I get these year next emails after market is closed, right? I mean, frankly, in the first week, I probably looked at it six hours a day. But again, you know, I like it when it goes up, but it doesn't change uh, my behavior or mood when it goes the other way. Because again, coming back to uh, you're never alone in the market, right? So if everything goes up and we go down, I might uh, interpret it differently. But if we are moving with the market, then uh, I'm okay. Yeah, obviously. Don't look at it too much. I think just, you know, spend time with your customers and your employees. And, and I think the share price will follow. I agree. Listen, Jesper, thank you very much for your time. Highly appreciate it. It was very instructive. Well, thank you. Good talking to you again. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for listening to IPO Stories. In future episodes, we will host CEOs, CFOs, advisors, and other participants in the IPO process to learn from their experience, like from Jesper today. If you like the show, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share the show with people around you. If you have questions about the IPO process that you would like us to address with future guests, please get in touch at contact at ipostories.com. That's contact at ipostories.com.